I want to begin just diving straight into our text today and then um, break it down as, um, as the Lord sees fit. So let me read, pray, and then um, see what the Lord will have to say. So we're in Malachi 2. We're in Malachi chapter 2, and we're reading from verse 1 to 9. So I'm reading from the ESV, so follow up in whatever translation you have. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, and dung, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instructions. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, again, we, we come as people in need of food, dear Lord Father. Um, the food which is your, your word, your... And this is not a new thing, Lord. It's from the, the very foundation, dear Lord God, of even Israel as a nation where Moses declared that you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so it is, dear Lord Father, we come knowing that we need this spiritual food, and, and not just on a Sunday, this is our daily food, Lord, that we need, that we might live well before you. So, Lord, as we come, Lord, feed us, let your spirit teach us, let your spirit move amongst us, and have his way, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the, one of the, the, um, the details of history, so to speak, that really help us understand the text um, are important. And, and, and one important feature I want to mention today, even before I kind of go into my intro, is, is that there were specific priests in the time, right from the very beginning of 
when Moses set up the tabernacle, there were specific priests that went around with swords. There was a militia amongst the priests. And we don't really see it clearly until Jesus, when he comes, when the militia, the, the priest guards come to arrest him in Gethsemane. And they come armed with swords. And so that's the first time we kind of get a hint of the nature of the priesthood. And then, you know, we get little glimmers of what things were like. When we read the book of Nehemiah, for example, we hear that they were supposed to be singers. So as you walked into the temple, people were singing praises to God as you come in and, and all this. So you suddenly realize that, that the temple wasn't this kind of drab place where, you know, it was a multi-sensory event. You know, the offerings will be going up, the incense will be going up, you know, cows will be sort of, people will be there eating their food, eating the, 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 the sacrifices, that pit that came back to them. So it was a bit of a restaurant. And so it was this bustling place of life. And amongst them was these priests with swords. And they patrolled around and if they saw anything out of hand, it was their duty to basically put it right. When you understand that dynamic, all of a sudden, everything that you see within the text starts to make more sense. It's like, wow, okay, this is a serious place. It's a bustling place, but it is a place where if you put a foot wrong, you may go to the temple, but you may not leave. Well, you'll leave, but not alive. And so that kind of gives a bit of clarity hopefully, as we kind of look at the text today and think, well, what is going on here? How do we deal with the issues that are in here? But anyway, that's a bit of detail that I think is, is important. And so as I go in, I want to start because as I was thinking about everything today, one particular person kind of came to my mind as I thought about, you know, what does it mean to have good, bold leadership? And no doubt many of us, if not all of us, will remember back in the days, about just over 10 years ago, Mark Driscoll was big on the scene. Big on the scene because, again, it was this introduction of manly men, bold leadership. You know, one of the things I remember when, you know, in my early days of Oak Hill, where that challenge, he came over to the UK and he laid this challenge to... The men, he said, well, I don't see anybody here doing what I'm doing. And to some extent, some people chose to be offended by that, but other people said, to some extent, there's a point. In a sense, that need for bold leadership. If we kind of looked at the Church of England and what they did, we kind of like were thinking, man, we don't really kind of speak truth to power in any sense. All we see is backtracking and we... I guess to some extent we saw that over even the gay marriage issues. And we didn't really get no clear leadership from the Church of England. But he was a rude awakening to the West, to the evangelical West. So the influence of Mars Hill had grown with its unapologetic message for men to be truly manly. And this need for the ministry to move to a bold and brash style that will hopefully meet the needs of a new generation. 
In the wake of the fall of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll's ministry in particular, I think we need to be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater when we think about that. Because I know many people go, see, that's it. We don't, that's the approach to Christianity we don't need. And to some extent, they may be right. But they're not completely right. In my run-up, I, again, I want to present this idea because these are, the, these are the thoughts I was going through as I was thinking about this week and thinking, how do I kind of, in a sense, we're stuck in the same disputa disputation. So there's six disputations. We're still in the second one, which obviously I began last week. And so this is kind of like more of kind of the, out, the outcomes of what Malachi declared last week. And so one of the things I was thinking about, is sensitivity the highest virtue in Christianity? Is that what we're called to? Ultimately, is sensitivity, when we think about every virtue we're supposed to have, ultimately, if it's not done with sensitivity, forget about it. In, current, in the current culture, many Christian denominations have given way to pressure for it to become more in line with the contemporary culture and the attitudes within it, i.e. with issues such as sexuality, even abortion, under the guise of women's rights. Well, I'm, 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 you know, well, I'm, you know I'm, I'm, I, I don't agree with abortion as a whole, but I believe it's a woman's right to choose what they do, with, and that's how they get around it to do what they with their bodies. Even on the whole idea of the, exclusive, the exclu exclusive claims of Christianity in the guise of plurality. Well, we live in a multicultural and God has his ways of getting there. We've seen so many denominations back down in order to fit into the culture, in order to be relevant. The problem with this, though, is that as the culture, and I'm thinking of obviously particularly Western culture, European and American, pulls further and further away from its Christians' moorings, the church has a tougher and tougher time of making the gospel relevant and unoffensive. It would seem that in order to make any kind of headway in modern life for your cause, you must come across as nice, and sensitive. One of the things I was thinking about, it's interesting that when it comes to um, the transgender movement and the, and, and the climate change movement, none of these guys have the right to be offensive. You know, it seems like the right to be offensive seems to be applied to them. And to be brash applies to them because this is the real emergency of our time. Many Christians have fallen prey to this belief that unfettered sensitivity is the best way to witness to a fallen world. This all comes under the guise of Christian love, of course, where we're called to be a loving community, which is obviously true. But in reality, it has become 
and insipid niceness. Christianity, and, it, and, and moral, it pushes Christianity further and further into obscurity. So rather than making ourselves relevant, what technically happens is that we blend into the culture where we don't have no light to shine upon it. And once people have got us to say what they want us to say, they ultimately can now ignore us. But what has actually happened here, rather than obviously love, it is now love that has been divorced from truth. And because it is now actually divorced from truth, it is now unloving. Because we're no longer prepared to tell people the truth about a matter. And one of the things we have to remember, it's not ourselves and our stance we're defending, it's God's stance. When someone comes to us as a Christian, they're not really asking what I think, they want to know what's the Lord's view on this. We ought to tell them the truth. said, losing the tension between these poles can be easy according to our own disposition. People who want to be liked can easily read all the verses with Jesus interacting with people in a sensitive manner and say, see, it's in the text. That's the way. Others who are in the less agreeable mode of personalities and are contentious, will then look at all the passages of Jesus' life, confronting people, giving them a tongue lashing, and say, see, I'm right. It's not about our temperament. And our temperament shouldn't be the final factor in how we deal with a matter. There are going to be times where we feel like we really need to give somebody a tongue lashing, but when it really comes down to it, like Jesus, we might have to give a sensitive approach and give people a way in without hindering them. And that can be difficult for somebody who really wants to give somebody a tongue lashing. And vice versa, when, we, when you want to be agreeable and you have to be liked, and then you've got that point where you have to say, I've got to tell you the truth on this issue. And that can be a challenge as well. We need to answer people according to, especially how the Spirit is leading us, truly leading us to deal with a particular issue. My final point in my intro, is, before I jump into these verses, is the need for the hybrid leader. The hybrid leader. We live in a time of hybrid, almost everything, you know, hybrid cars and whatnot. But the Christian leaders today cannot afford to break the tension between all the virtues that define a balanced believer. 
And this is for us as well, because obviously, again, within the context of where we might be, you may not be the pastor within the context of this church, but you're going to be a leader somewhere. You're going to be a leader in your home, possibly, leader in your work community, where Christianity stands, where there needs to be a witness. If you're the only Christian there, that's your mission field. That's your place of leadership. And when Christian issues come up, you should be there to defend it. We see this balance of all the virtues as opposed to this whole idea that I'm going to make sensitivity the highest value. We see in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Read and understand that tension of all those gifts that the Spirit is trying to develop in you. And if you don't believe it, then why is it in the text? Because those are all the characteristics you're supposed, the Spirit of God is trying to bring out. Read it. Study it. See what you like. So no matter what our temperament, our aim is to be renewed in our minds. As we relate this to our text today, the challenge is to look deeper into what the failings of the leadership are, especially in Malachi's time, but again, into our time as well, and why God comes down so hard on them. Again, it's about honoring God above all. And when we don't do that, we're in trouble. So looking at verse 1. So as I said, we're, in the, we're still in the second disputation that Malachi is giving to the people of his time. And we are understanding even for our own context. So it's interesting because now, to some extent, the focus, as we look at verse 1 in the new, in chapter 2, is that, the, the re, that you, we are now refocused again on the priest. So to some extent, even though the priest came up in verse 6 of the previous chapter, to some extent, the priests were being implicated amongst the people. In other words, Here's what's going wrong. The people obviously are not giving the appropriate offerings. You're kind of all in this together. But now, to some extent, the focus has been narrowed down. And I'm saying, now I'm talking to you priests, in a sense. The culture may have its reasons for doing what it's doing. The society may have its reasons for doing what it's doing. But now, he's doubling down and he's looking purely and squarely at the priests. To some extent, the people, people could be people, right? They're going to get away with whatever we can get away with. But the priests, it's a different matter. And so, that's what we have in the first verse. A doubling down and saying, I'm no longer looking at the people anymore and what they're doing. I'm now looking at you. Verse 2. This one can be tricky to decipher because it has that if clause, doesn't it? If you would do this, and then 
to some extent, you can get a brighter future for yourself. But in the next sentence, the Lord has already cursed them because he sees that the power to change is not in their heart. So now we can wrestle with this and say, oh, well, what's really true is, you know, and again, a Calvinist and an Arminius will jump on the same text and expound their view and say, because it says both. But the reality is, is that there is one point where you're looking at it from a human perspective, you know something, if you change and actually bucked up, this would actually change. My approach to you would actually change. Israel or Judea at this time will not be in danger, and that's genuine. But because Malachi is also writing this from the perspective of God, the Lord already knows, the eternal God, knows it's not in their heart to change. And so that's why he says, I've already cursed you because it's not in your heart. So the way I wrestle with verses like this is to be able to say, one is looking from the human perspective of what would change will change your situation. But God being who he is, he can't kind of go, oh, I can't see you, who you really are. I can pretend not to see you. He can see you. We stand before God as who we are. And so God has that prerogative to be able to speak as the Lord. And the Lord with capitals all the way through because I am the sovereign God. I can do that. We move on to verse 3. Now, the offspring of the priests are also in danger. So they're being targeted. It's not just about you. It's about your inheritance. And obviously, what we, one of the things we remember about the priesthood and the, the Levitical priesthood is that the role of the father would pass down to the sons. Generation, generation, and generation. And so, because the priesthood in itself is in danger that they're also endangering their own children's future and livelihood. So one of the things we can also go, and, 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 and again, it's, you know, the argument is that, well, God's not into that whole sins of the father being passed down to the, to the children and all that kind of stuff. And, and to some extent, that's true. It's not like God says, well, you know, because your dad did it, I'm going to... But the reality is, and this is something we can't escape from. This is why when the Lord says that when you're disobedient, it will affect you to the fourth generation, is that your influence, what you have done, has an effect. If I go and gamble all my money away and leave us impoverished, guess what? Taiwan and my kids are all out on the street. Have they sinned? No. But I'm affecting them. And this is what we have to remember, is that we are indeed creating the environment. And again, one of the reasons, I mean, 
even by the very virtue why the fact that when you go into a doctor's and they ask you about your family's history, even on a genetic level, we are passing down to our children that which we've inherited. So again, we have to understand this idea of not suffering for the sins of a father in a very nuanced way. I can indeed create an environment that will make it harder for my children or easier. You've got to be honest about that. The level of the dishonor is now to now also revealed in verse 3. Of having someone smear dung on your face. That's the level of dishonor. And this is God basically saying, this is what you've done to me, I'm going to do it to you. It's one of those things that translates throughout all time, isn't it? There's no decade, no century, where having dung smeared on your face is okay. That one translates well, doesn't it? This tells me that this is no faux pas, you know, that word for, it's ah, just a little, it's not just a minor thing. It's just a, God is like saying, no, it's not on that level. This is not something that's easily forgiven. Because God is truly humiliated by the standards of their sacrifice. And in keeping with that sacrificial service, the Lord is now saying, you know the dung that you'd ordinarily just take out of the animal and go outside of the camp and dispose of it? I tell you what, and this is what he's playing into. It's quite clever. The dung goes on your face on the basis that you're now taken outside of the camp and outside of the temple and disposed of. He's playing right into the scenario. Fine, okay, we'll put the dung on you. The dung needs to be disposed of. You go out the temple, and that's where the Lord is like saying, that's the door. Get out. Go to where the dung needs to go to. So we've established that God is truly humiliated. And we shouldn't forget that. Moving on to verse 4. From the very formation of Israel at, as a nation at Sinai with Moses, the Levites were chosen to serve the Lord on behalf of the Israelites. So now the Lord wants them to know that whatever happens to them is no coincidence. The judgment I will give, don't try to kind of write it off as, you know, oh, just one of those strange coincidences. It's the judgment of God. This is important because the Levites only retain their position in accordance to their faithfulness and not as a birthright. In other words, they, had, they were not entitled to be priests regardless of what they do. Their faithfulness was required 
in order for them to retain their position. And if we doubt that, then let us look at the figure of Eli in the book of Samuel. That his own removal had that same effect on his whole family. First Samuel 3, 11 to 14. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family, from the beginning to the end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. So that day when the Philistines ran into Shiloh, wiped it out, where the temple of the Lord was, Samuel, or the Lord, speaking through Samuel, wanted Eli to know that was not a coincidence. It just so happened. That happened because of the judgment of God. It was not just one of those things. And eventually, again, you know, it gets quite graphic. And, you know, another prophet comes along and tells him that you're basically, you're going to have, your descendants will be begging even for small jobs in the temple. That's your future. So say what we say about the sins of the father. But we can have a detrimental effect. What we do here and now can have a detrimental effect on what happens in the life of those we love. Moving on to verse 5. So contrary to what we may think about the covenant with with the Levites, God was not an unforgiving and relentless boss. So that's the image we kind of get now. It's like this is God so exacting, a difficult boss. Remember, you know, again in the parables, isn't it, with um, the talents where one thought of God like that. And so was trying to be, in a sense, his excuse was, I'm trying to be very careful because I don't want to displease him. And again, misrepresented God. And we can all be like that, isn't it? I don't want to fail Because God, I believe he can be quite exacting, but ultimately, we're not sidestepping anything. We're running right into the judgment of God anyway. So is God holding them to impossible standards? Here Malachi phrases the covenant as one of peace and life, as well as of fear. Peace and life speak of the importance of their role in sanctifying the nation on behalf of God so that there would be peace between the people and God. 
fear speaks of the reverence the position requires so that they honor the Lord. In other words, God, from Malachi's perspective, it's a, your role is a role of peace. It's important for that reason. Let's take another example from the Levitical priesthood and see, is God really exacting? Leviticus 10, 1 to 3. Now Nabdab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid the incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now you can go, wow, I mean, come on, wrong fire. Until you read a bit further, verse 8 and 11. Same chapter. And the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. You know the weird thing about that is that pretty much every job requires that you don't drink while you're performing your task. Name a job where you can go and drink. Even if you're working in a bar. You know, you don't want to be giving somebody the wrong change. <laughs> was that a 50 you gave me or a 10? Oh, it was a 50, mate. Oh, yeah, okay then. Your boss requires you to be on the ball. And even people buying you a drink, you go, yeah, yeah, I'm going to keep that one for later. Boss is watching. And so, in that sense, this whole idea of this exacting God, but then later we get that definition that it is more than likely that Nabdab and Abihu went in drunk and misplaced the wrong fire onto the altar. And it's not so much that they got the wrong offering up there, it was the fact that they tried to do their job whilst drunk. So that the Lord has now got to say, you know what, because these people can mess up in so many different ways, he adds a new statute and he says, from now on, the new statute is that we don't drink and work. And we have to say, fair enough, right? It's a standard that we still keep today. Let's move on to verse 6. The Levites would have been the only person who would have been able to receive the law as this time, obviously, this dispensation. They would have known the law. They would have learnt the law from, they were children, and it would have been obviously taught from their fathers down to them, and they would have had to preserve the scrolls and the oral tradition of the, of the law of God. 
So in that sense, this speaking of them that you hold the knowledge of God is speaking specifically of that. The scroll, the, 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 the Levites were your walking Bibles. They didn't have scrolls and they didn't, obviously the people weren't literate to be able to read scrolls. They may not have been familiar with the oral traditions of the law being passed down. So in order to understand where they stood with God, they needed to consult a Levite. They were the Bibles of their time. And when you understand that, then you suddenly realize how important it is because if I now tell you something about what God is like and it misrepresents him, the people are going to go away and know no different. There is no men of Berea to see if there's things are written in the scriptures differently. There's no Septuagint in this time floating around. No popular editions of the text. And not a high enough literacy rate in order to read it if they could. So there was, that was how important their role was. I can only know what God is saying from what you're telling me. One of the things that is interesting about the Levites, again, there are not many accounts where the Levites are displayed as saving the people, as this verse kind of unpacks. And especially in the latter years of Israel. So, there's, so where do we see this dynamic figure of the Levite saving the people? One figure, for me at least, stood out, and that was the figure of Phineas. In the very early days, the great grand, well, the, grand, the grandson of, of Aaron. And we read about him in, in Numbers 25, and it's important. I want to take the time I want to read this. Numbers 25, 1 to 13. Because it's kind of highlighting what this verse is talking about. And you'll see that representation of that eternal covenant with, with the Levitical priesthood and being of peace and love for the people. And behold, reading from verse 1 to 13, sorry. No, verse 6. And behold, one of the people, so at this point, so let me get the context. The Midianites have now got um, the people of Israel, um, or so, some of the men sleeping with their temple prostitutes. And so this is going on amongst the camp. And now uh, plague is breaking out in the camp. God says they're sitting in the camp and people are dying and something needs to happen. And this is where we come to this family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So weeping because people are dying and yet people are carry on blazingly in their sin. When Phineas the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus, the plague on the, the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, 
Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. You see that picture of the Levite not just basically being someone that just all pious, and, but the picture of a Levite as a warrior. A picture of a Levite that we may have lost, and I think to some extent have lost within the modern church, of the whole idea that some of them were strapping for a reason. And Phineas himself didn't even have, and by virtue of being able to get two people on one sphere through the belly, can tell you that he wasn't even going to be polite and wait till they were finished. But skewered them in their own tent. Because... So if that kind of finished at verse 9, you would kind of think, well, we don't really know what... Well, was God really in that? But then it's, like the, it's the commentary from verse 10 onwards that helps us to understand that what Phineas did was really good in God's eyes. Note now some liberal minister without those verses would have looked at that and said, well, you know, come on, that's not how you deal with confronting sin. But God's commentary was that the slaughter would have been worse if Phineas never acted. Because people would have seen that and said, oh, we can get away with this. And this is where, we, again, and not in my notes, but maybe worth it, when we, are, when we try to deal with these issues within our own church as well, understand why. We can all cringe at church discipline. But from the text, this is why. We don't tolerate this. We're loving the sinner. We're loving the, 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 the fact that people mess up. We all do. But the reality is, let's call it what it is. And God is not pleased with this, but we want to see people restored. Maybe we, it won't stop us from cringing, but the reality is that we can still say to our hand, but this is important. This is important. Verse 7. The priests who were supposed to hold the law of God were to disseminate the knowledge to the people and as and when needed. As I said, they were the Bibles. Note the dual responsibility. For the lips of the priests should guard knowledge and the people should seek instruction from his mouth. In other words, it's not just all on the priests. If, you're, if you have an issue, if you're cloudy on something, it was your responsibility to seek out your Bible. So there's none of this, oh, I, I kind of wandered in ignorance and just felt and was just doing what was right. 
that dual responsibility is in there. It, the priests were to hold the knowledge of God and the people were to seek the knowledge of God. Again, 1 Peter 4, 10. 10b to 11a. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God, varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So when we speak even to one another, there's that sense in which, especially within the context of preaching from a, from a pulpit into the, that it is done as the oracle of God, with the purpose of dispelling, dispelling truth to people. Whatever our talents are, especially if it is in understanding the word of God and breaking it down, there is a responsibility to seek out that knowledge. When you're struggling with a text, when you're struggling with something and struggling maybe even with an ethical issue in your life, there is hopefully someone talented enough amongst us who you could go to and say, what do you think about this, brother? What do you think about this, sister? Can you help me? There's that responsibility to seek each other out. As Peter says, those gifts are distilled amongst the church and you mustn't assume that we can all do it by ourselves. I am blessed with the variety of talents that we have around us and no doubt you are. Let us use that to our advantage. Verse 8. The failings of the priests in Malachi's day should not be watered down to merely step in a little bit outside of protocol. We've already cleared this, but it's important here because it arises. The way this verse is presented, it would be better to understand this as a corruption on par with actually being the reverse of what they ought to be. In other words, it's not, as I said, a little faux pas, a little accident, all the rest of it. It's actually... the. the the incrimination is that they are doing the anti-priest role. They're dispelling, they, they, they're getting rid of God's presence from the people as opposed to inviting it. In order to help us with this, think of it like a police officer who is really a criminal. And we've all had that similarity where ultimately our trust in the institution breaks down. And it's weird because even as I think about it, except for one, there's even the issue of nurses, doctors who take lives. In the news already, isn't it? It's the reverse of what they're supposed to do. And then even if you extend it, it's like a fire person who burns houses down. That's the level of the corruption. It's not that you've made a mistake. You're, you're getting rid of my presence from the people of God. And just like when we lose our faith in our institutions, we end up ultimately being a mockery. 
That's why I say when we no longer have that distinctiveness where we're able to represent God well, the people believe that we can ignore us. So in all of our endeavors to be incredibly sensitive to the culture around us, we are endeavoring to push ourselves into obscurity. Verse 9. <clears throat> what the priests had done in order to curry favor with the people ended up leading to their abasement and being despised. This leads us back to where we started, and in particular, what leaders feel tempted to do in order to stay relevant to people. People who are wandering away from God. The more we do to placate people rather than challenge them, and their drifting away from the gospel will inevitably make you less relevant, not more. When a lost culture has everyone singing from the same hymn sheet, it loses its ability to make its way back. This should also make us wary of living in a society where views from the political wings are met with derision by each other. In other words, when we, know when we, when we stop listening, when we, we don't like the whole idea, you know, I just want a completely right society, you know, conservative values all the way through. Or I want a completely left society with, you know, with none of those things. I, I can't learn anything from that particular. And we see that as well, right? Where we don't want none of that variety. We want all to be of the same stripe. We want all to be saying the same thing, as though that is going to help us. When realistically, God has placed us as, you know, again, not my illustration, but beautiful, as piano, keys on a piano. The right note at the right time. Not just bang, 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 one flavor. This is just all we do. That society is supposed to be a melody. What helps us now? And if we lose that Christian voice within our culture, within our nation, then we will never be able to be a part of that melody that it needs to hear. I want to leave us with two illustrations um, about what it means when the priesthood ultimately fails in a society and what we could look forward to. And it comes from the book of Judges. Now, we've done the book of Judges a couple of times in this church, in, our, in my Bible study, and, and this is something I, I try to bring out every time I study, we, we do it, that we, we're at the end of Judges, from Judges 17 right through to 21, we're left with two stories. And at the heart of those stories is a, is a Levite. And in particular, it's a Levite that leaves Bethlehem. I'll say more about that now, but read it if you can. But I believe that those stories are there to show you that when a culture loses all of its moorings, this is what happens. This is the madness that happens. You'll worship anything, and crime will be rife, ultimately. 
The first one is Micah. Now, not Micah the prophet, but there's a man called Micah in Judges 17, and he, he steals some money from his mum, builds an idol from it. Oh, the mum gives him the money back, and he builds an idol from it, and he creates a little temple for himself in his house in the mountains of Ephraim. And then he finds a Levite who wanders away from Bethlehem, and he says, come and be my priest. Let me speak from the text itself. Judges 17, 10 to 13. And Micah said to him, to the Levite that wanders into his house, stay with me and be a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and he was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. You see the weird orientation there. Micah ordains the Levite in his own religion. That's that picture of the placation of the people where the Levite who is the one who ultimately is to give instructions, is being ordained by the man he's supposed to be leading. Is that the type of leadership we want here? What do you want me to do? You ordain me. What would you like to hear? That's the implication when the people ordain the priests. However, the plot thickens when a scouting party of Danites stumble upon Micah's house. Now, all of a sudden, what are these Danites going to do? Well, they, they're looking for a plot to live. They, 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 the Danites are, are struggling. And then they stumble upon the man who they seem to recognize. And in 18, 18 to 20, they say this. And when these men, and when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, so this is the scouts, the Danite scouts, the ephod and the household gods and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand to your mouth and come with us and be to us the father and a priest. It is better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe, clan, and a clan in Israel. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So he's looking like that. This is, so not only is he now involved in pagan worship now, he sees a better opportunity. Because now when he questions them, when they come to take the way, hey, stop, what are you doing? They said, hey, You want to be a priest for a whole clan? Get more money? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. So he runs off. Micah tries to pursue, but he gets nowhere because obviously this is a clan. <laughs> this is a tribe. And these little handful of villagers are not going to do anything against them. So he turns back. But... 
it's not like as if I even reached the end of the worst part of the story. This is real tales of the unexpected stuff. Because it's actually 1830 where we get the real... And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. This is not just lower, this is not low stock Levitical priests. This is the grandson of Moses himself. That's the real punch. It's not like as if the, the, it was like, you know, well, you can, you know, you can fool the, the, the kind of peripheral priests and all the rest of it. This, he has ties to Moses. And that's the real slap is that this level of corruption is happening to what you might say the founding father of Israel. So as the, as the grandfather was building it up to, to serve the Lord, the grandson was tearing it down and was doing so right up until the very last day, some 800 years or no, 400 years later. In the next account, another Levitical priest leaves Bethlehem. So this leaving of Bethlehem is a symbol of stepping away from orthodoxy because Bethlehem in the days of the kings was the place where the, the, the king, where God has obviously created his covenant. It's like I'm stepping away from the, the covenant of David and moving into the pagan world. So it's a kind of a motif. So he leaves Bethlehem to go back to his hometown. And here it is worth noting the coldness of the Levite in contrast to the people of Gibeah, which is the new Sodom and Gomorrah. So he, much like in the days of Lot, he leaves he moves into a, a, a small Benjamite town thinking that will be better and it will be safer than if he goes to an actual nearer pagan village. So he goes to, this, to Gibeah and the men come at night and say, I want to have sex uh, with the man. And the man whose house he goes into ultimately says, well, look, we can't do this. He's my guest. It will be bad. Um, let me chuck my daughter and his concubine that he came to go and get. Let's throw them out and you do have your way with them and then um, we'll call it quits. So they do. And so where we meet them in the story is the next morning. So Judges 19, 27 to 30. And her master, that is the Levite, rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house and went out, to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel 
came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. You know, so many ways I can break this test down, but time is against me. The first thing I, I just want to note in terms of his coldness is that he actually slept. It says he rose up. The concubine that he thought was so important that it was worth leaving his hometown for to come and find, he ultimately sleeps well while the whole world is having their wicked way with her. And it's the fact that he steps over her and then tells her to get up. Not even like, hey, come, I know it was a tough night. Get up, let's go. And if that's not worse enough, he slums her onto a donkey, takes her back home, and it's very easy to see this as a great moral story about how this guy was seeking justice, but when you understand a little bit of the history, the brutality of what he does in terms of dividing her up was what pagan kings used to do in order to entice people to come out on a war or war raiding party. And we see Saul do a similar thing as well in the book of Samuel when he cuts up, but at least he just cuts up an oxen. He cuts up his wife, his concubine. And it was supposed to mean that whoever doesn't come out to war, this is what will happen to you. I will come and divide you up. It was a, it was a warning sign. It was like a, it's kind of like a mafiosa kind of thing. This is what happens to the person who doesn't show up for my cause. As I said, it's the corruption of the priesthood. The priests have lost their way, and so it is no doubt when you read that, and everyone done what was right in their own eyes in the book of Judges, the priests, I believe, are, we're reminded at the very end of the book of Judges, where were the priests in all of this? They were right in the heart of the corruption. They were no better than the people around them. To the point where God had to rise up any man, even a Samson, in order to bring some form of justice back and judgment back into Israel. In the land of the blind, a one-eyed man is king. Anybody would do. the application <laughs> there are times when sensitivity is not tenable because the issue is so so difficult there's no easy answers to give to a culture that have gone so far away from God that even in our endeavor to be sensitive in our endeavor to, to try and say well look this is, this is what you need to hear. We need to give them a sense of how far it's gone. And there's no easy way to hear that. If there's one maybe word of wisdom to how we don't get there is that old 
proverb, isn't it? A stitch in time saves nine. In other words, as you guard the, the community, as we guard and defend what we do so we, we don't end up drifting far away where, you, where the people know where their leaders stand on an issue to some extent because we see these things coming. Then to some extent, it kind of softens the blow because as their challenge, as your challenge may be outside there in the world, you kind of know where we stand. Oh, we, we've spoken about that issue. Yeah, I, I, I believe that's bad. I don't, I don't think that we are going to be able to stand by any form of gay marriage. Consensual or not, I just, yeah. Whatever the issue may be, that we speak about it. We let you know what the Word of God says. And we guard that, and hopefully it means that we do this role well. I don't want to stop there, though, but when we think about the priesthood and the corruption, we suddenly have to realize how, how unique a role Christ plays in all of this. The uncorruptible priest. The true priest. The priest that won't fall, even though we may do so. Hence, even though the standards, and because of this, we know that God's will will be done because though all may fail and fall around us, even I may fail, Christ still stands and he's the head of this church. So, even though Israel ultimately fell and became exiled, we will not because of the priest that ultimately underwrites our position. Christ alone. And for this reason, we are safe. We are safe because of who he is and because this is his church in which he is the chief cornerstone. That doesn't, ex that doesn't obviously say, oh, that means for us as leaders, we don't have, you know, we, we, we can take our foot off, you know, Christ is king and it's okay. Follow him as I'm, you know, it's not about that. There is a challenge for us as well. Because God has put us in direct contact with the world in which he wants us to engage with. And with this church community in which we have to engage with. And I want to leave us with this. Luke 14, 34 to 35. Make of it as you see fit. But I know what it means. And I know that the Spirit of God won't allow you to miss what it means. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.